it was when I pondered the story of Jesus through my own post-traumatic lens, now seeing the world in a very different way and saying, you know, Jesus did everything right and look what happened to him. Maybe his experience is the experience of every human life that follows him. That, In fact, maybe even every human life that, that exists on this planet. On In Good Faith, we believe that all faith traditions have something to teach us about how God is working in the world and in our lives. So join us to listen, learn, and be amazed. On this episode of In Good Faith, we're going to hear words like trauma and PTSD combined with faith and religion from both of our guests, including David W. Peters, whom we just heard in the intro, and who we'll hear from in the second half of the show. I'm in studio with senior producer Heather Bigley. Hello. And producer Ashton Rowan. Hi, good to be here. Some people would say this is not very cheery. We're going to talk about people going through very difficult things. And I love the the way these two interviews fit together. Well, I like that you say it's not very cheery because we have Dr. Melissa Inouye on the show and she has such an infectious laugh that she, <laughs> she employs does. multiple times in these interviews. So I think she makes this tough topic much more palatable. Well, I think it's hard won. Hard won wisdom and those are deserved laughs. She earned yeah. them. <laughs> and that's a, that's a trick of perspective, I think, is finding humor even in, in difficult situations. Dr. Melissa Weitzing Inoue is a scholar of modern Chinese history and religion and works as a historian at the Church History Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And her new 2023 book is called Sacred Struggle, Seeking Christ on the Path of Most Resistance. So she and our next guest are from two different Christian denominations, but they are tied together by this Christian idea of having a God who is not just above it all, but descends below it all and experiences all the worst things. Yeah, both these people are going to take the crucifixion and Jesus's plea um, about where is God and his deep sorrow, and they're going to really analyze it and apply it to their lives. And I love that they're tied together in this interfaith sense. They're tied together most strongly by the crucifixion and what this means for, for our theology across all Christian denominations. So we had to start with the title of the book, the whole idea of what is a sacred struggle? Well, I think the point is, you know, Jesus's path of most resistance, when you read the Gospels, he doesn't only struggle or suffer in the Garden of Gethsemane or on the cross, you know, at the very end of his life. You see him wading over and over again into very sticky situations. And he wasn't in a particularly good position to do that. He was a marginal person. He was from a backwater rural place that no one had a great opinion of. He was not wealthy. He wasn't hooked up with the local religious establishment in a way that gave him a lot of institutional authority. He said foxes have their holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Sometimes he didn't even have a place to sleep. He was like a homeless person. So he wasn't a very powerful person in terms of his positioning in society. But over and over again, you see him just kind of taking on the most complicated, fraught social situations ever and religious and moral and ethical situations ever. He just kind of waded right in. There's Jesus, you know, reaching out to the lepers. There's Jesus, you know, getting involved when people are trying to stone an adulteress. It's pretty tricky. 
And just looking at Jesus from that point of view, you see that that was his path. And therefore, this idea of following Jesus becomes a bit frightening sometimes because that's where he was in in those hard situations. So the idea of, quote, being kind may take a little bit of effort. But if we follow deeper into discipleship, we do come to our testing moments of life. And this is where I felt like you sort of grabbed onto me and dragged me, <laughs> dragged me with you through some very difficult moments. You are a cancer survivor, currently in treatment. And you, bottom of, of page 43, after you've described difficult days one and two of a chemotherapy cycle. If I can have you read, if you don't mind. On days one and two, as I pass through that deep valley, I wonder whether Christ despaired in his suffering and wished it had never come to him. Did his moral perfection and divine knowledge insulate him from discouragement? Was he able to float grandly above the fray, detached from his body's hurts and wants, observing frailty but not subjected to it? I remember he felt exceedingly heavy, see Matthew 26, 37, and prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I remember he shrank not, quote, to drink the bitter cup, close quote, Doctrine and Covenants 1918, but wonder if he found it unbearably bitter. Did he ever think, I don't know if I can do this, or I don't know how long I can keep this up? I remember he cried out in agony and desolation, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it's so poignant to read that, but then to think we will each be brought to some point where we wonder if we can deal with what we are called to deal with. And it seems so much more meaningful than to be in that position, as you describe, and have cause to wonder, how close did he come to giving up? I just think that's very insightful and also sort of ties me to Jesus even more. Well, if I can just say a little bit more about that, I I had this other experience recently where I was in this clinical trial that was very physically strenuous. I lost my ability to use my hands. I lost my ability to walk. Um, I was delirious for days. Coming out of that, I, I thought again about Jesus. And I realized that the moment that made Jesus the most like Jesus, I think was that moment where He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because the Book of Mormon, a sacred scripture, teaches that that Christ came to experience our physical sufferings in order to be able to help us. So in this moment where Jesus himself doubted and felt lost, that's the moment that gave him the power that he needed to be our Savior. And that he continued in that moment. Hmm. Wow. You quote a Latter-day Saint theology of suffering from uh, BYU professor Francine Banyan, which essay I would highly recommend to anyone. It sort of seems like the suffering is the point. It's kind of hard, a hard message. <laughs> but, but I'm not a very old, experienced person. And I think most cancer patients don't start being cancer patients in their 30s. So... For me, the really hard thing and also the valuable thing has been to see at an earlier age than I personally would have noticed just how hard life can be and Mm. how difficult it can be. But I think when life is hard, sometimes we're like, 
why is this happening? Why doesn't God fix this? But I think Latter-day Saint theology teaches that struggle is a feature, not a bug of mortal existence. It's actually kind of the whole point. And that is a very, very hard lesson, I think, to hear because nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants to be in pain. And I I don't wish suffering and pain on anyone or on myself, you know? I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> well, and only partially tongue-in-cheek, I think, you give a very vivid description of the question that must come to each of us about why is someone who eats so healthy and exercises struck down with some health impediment while someone who lives on, on Cheetos and whatever seems to just breeze through? It's it's not just. It's not fair. And if I can quote what you quoted from Francine Bennion, if we are to be like God... We cannot live forever in fear that we may meet something that will scare us or that will hurt us. Do you think those moments have, it sounds like they've strengthened some aspect of you? I think I grew up in a very privileged situation. You know, I was never hungry growing up. I got a wonderful education and I just had a healthy body that did what I wanted it to. You know, and not everyone has, Mm. you know, those things. So I think for a lot of many years of my life, I was maybe under this kind of prideful delusion that I was awesome. And I wasn't. <laughs> I just simply hadn't had anything bad happen to me yet. I had this optimistic, confident personality, but I just hadn't been in pain for a long period of time. It was actually really confronting when I had this, um, you have these episodes of, of pain and, and you realize that it changes your personality. You're less generous. You're less bubbly. You're less full of life and energy. And you're like, oh my gosh, my whole life I thought this was my personality, but it was simply my physical condition. Interesting. That's like a weird feeling. Mm. But it, it makes you more humble. And I think what it also does is it sensitizes you to the struggles of others, which allows you to be more useful And being more useful, I think, is the point of life. So that's good. Do you think if if we cry out, and even if we're not relieved from suffering or a difficult situation, that we still hope for, at least God, tell me why? If I can quote something you, you wrote, I know some of my own slogans, life is a marathon, attachment is a source of suffering, no pain, no gain, but... And then italics here, where art thou, O God? When wilt thou deliver me? I have wrestled with God seeking some epiphany that would make the problem of suffering feel right. Like maybe I can feel right about this if I have some certain understanding about it. Mm. But it seems like that's not delivered in a telegram either. No. And the, the kind of phrase that follows after that, I think, is that suffering never feels right. It (laughs) feels like suffering. (laughs) (laughs) That's just all it feels like. But what I have become really sure of is that there is God and God is mindful of me. And that's that's a kind of weird feeling because sometimes it's like you're falling off a 90-story building and like as you're passing the 70th story, you feel this warm, kind hand upon you. Like... I see you, you know, I love you, and I'm right here, and that's great. And then you keep on falling. <laughs> so, so sometimes that can be very confusing, but also, again, if I really believe this idea, which I do, that the point of life is not to never die, the point of life is not to never have pain, 
never have frustration. But the point of life, in fact, is to experience mortality, to have pain, to have frustration, and eventually to die. Then, again, it feels, again, like a, a feature, not a bug. It's not like God is a neglectful plumber and there's this toilet which is spewing a geyser into the air and not fixing it. It's just that this kind of struggle is built into mortality. And indeed, we believe, if Latter-day Saints believe, to never struggle was the plan of Lucifer the devil. And, and to never struggle is almost like never living and never having the opportunity to grasp life's richness. Mm. And you point out this little microcosm on a 14-day chemo cycle where the first days are just, I mean, you've done a, an effective job of describing nausea and misery and weakness and what to me, I would start to feel some hopelessness. And then as that changes until about day 14, life seems great. I wonder if you could read halfway down that page. Going from... Deathly ill, very horrible, too. Very cheerful, all as well. In the course of 14 days, is not resurrection. But it has taught me about beginnings and ends. Having experienced suffering, one develops power over it. Not the power to stop it or to take it away from someone you love, but to know its sorrows fade. Having experienced suffering, one receives power from it. The power to share others' burdens and be humble. To see one's own burdens and be kind. On the other side of suffering is strength. It is a peculiar sort of confidence that derives from having had no confidence at all. Things that once seemed difficult are now no trouble, and things that seem like trouble now reveal themselves as gifts. People who once seemed vexing, inexplicable, or foreign now feel like kin because they have known pain. People who once seemed broken and tainted with ruin while I imagined myself to be whole are now my sisters and brothers. Truly, now I know that I am nothing, which thing I never had supposed. We could spend an hour digging more into this, I would like, because you do, to focus on some of the other ways that we engage in sacred struggle and not to diminish that in some ways maybe that physical struggle can be one of the most difficult because it's so inward. But one thing you talk about is the gift of other people as our teachers and this concept of covenantal conflict where you covenant to be part of a body of Christ, a particular denomination in this case, and then you're there with people who you may totally disagree with and are called to love. Can you talk to me about that? I think this principle, struggle is a feature, not a bug, extends to our communities, mm -hmm. extends to our churches, and to these kind of sacred bonds that we form. It's the best thing, I think, about our faith that we form these covenant bonds with other people. We promise to bear their burdens, to mourn with those that mourn, to comfort those that stand in need of comfort. We promise to give all that we have to build Zion. But when you think about it, that's like an extremely fraught project, especially when you get outside your little tiny identity group, you know, the group of people who have the same kind of background experience and set of worldviews as you do. I think sometimes we pray for the missionaries to go out and like bring people into the church. And we think that means that there's going to be more and more people like us. But no, that's exactly the opposite. There's going to be more and more people who are exactly the opposite of us. That's what missionary work means. Mm. From one point of view, that's like horrible. It's never going to work. But from on the other hand, I think it's awesome. I think it's like the best part about the church is this global ambition that we have to be brothers and sisters to each other across these divides. Now, are we very good at it? No. <laughs> Just like, just in our little wards, right? You know, within the same country, the same county, the same, you know, neighborhood. 
it's well, like yeah. really hard. <laughs> yeah, same, let's let's say same same country, same county, same neighborhood, same race, same belief. And then if there's some little political difference, we maybe can't even talk to each other. Right. But start adding different country, different belief, different race, different socioeconomic status. Right, different I mean, set of assumptions. Just start about stirring right all those ingredients, and we've got lessons to learn. Yeah. And God set it up this way. Huh? What was he thinking? I don't know. I think it's pretty cool, though. <laughs> I have had the privilege of living in different parts of the world just because of the ways in which my family's needs have gone. It's really surprising how different the church is in different places. So, for example, in Hong Kong, Hong Kong is one of the most, at the time, was one of the most economically stratified places in the world. You have extremely wealthy expatriates. You have extremely exploited domestic workers who live in closets, you know, or sleep in the kitchen Mm. and um, are basically kind of like indentured servants. The majority of the English-speaking international district are these domestic workers. I'd say 70%, 80% of the membership of the church. So you'd have the most exploited, least paid people in Hong Kong going to church with the expatriates who are working for Goldman Sachs and Bain and Mm. Deutsche Bank and everything in in the same district, you know, listening to conference together. It's really funny to listen to conference in that situation because people laugh at different times or like respond at different times. It's really weird because it's these two totally different cultural blocks. So usually in Hong Kong, there are domestic worker branches just for domestic workers. When I was there, there was a branch in Discovery Bay, which is this part of Hong Kong, where they insisted on meeting together. The expatriates and the domestic workers who are members of the church meet together which is like very egalitarian. And, and they, they, they insist on having this kind of shared branch culture. Church provides these opportunities for us to get out of our comfort zones, to encounter people who are really different from us, and in so doing, to try to do what Jesus was doing, which was bringing together all these different people and getting them to try to be in each other's shoes, to love each other as they would like to be loved. At the same time, you know, it's so fraught, it's so difficult. There are so many things that can go wrong because people are involved. You give this great parable of driving on a road, a really windy road. So when we lived in New Zealand, in Auckland, we lived at the edge of this beautiful Waitakere rainforest. And there's this beach called Piha. But to get to Piha, you go on the super windy road. And we had this, you know, minivan. It was like very beautiful. There's, you know, these beautiful hills that you're looking at. But when we got to Piha, the driver would be super happy because it's really fun. It's usually my husband because I hate driving. So Joseph would be like pretty happy because it was like a pretty fun drive. It's like like Mario Kart, right? All the turns and the fun angles and it's like a race car or the Grand Prix or something really cool. But the kids in the back especially just feel so sick, so miserable. And the question is, if we're all in the same car, traveling the same road, how could we possibly have such different experiences? And the answer is, of course, just by our positioning in the car. That actually makes a big difference. The driver has access to the steering wheel, so there's something to hold on to. Also, the driver has control. Like, the driver's like, I'm going to turn right, and then turns right. So there's this kind of understanding. And, you know, it's true, like, when you're trying not to be sick, you know, it's good to be in the front of the car because you can see where the car's going, and, and your body kind of, like, 
keeps up better with your eyes. Yeah, your your body and, and your your eyes are in agreement. So just by your positioning within the car, whether you have control, whether you don't have control, whether you can have the full view, whether you don't have the full view, whether in your front or the back, it does drastically change your experience. So there are a couple of things we can say about this. You know, if, if you're in the front and the people in the back say, oh, I'm sick, you might feel kind of insulted, like, oh, you're saying I'm a bad driver or something like that. But that's not what they're saying. What they're expressing is, like, I rode in this car with you, even though I knew I was going to get sick. Another thing that we can notice about this is that if you want to experience and to understand your passengers and to hopefully help them not be sick, then you have to get into the back seat. You have to find a way to not be in the driver's seat and to be in the actual back seat with the actual back seat passengers. You can't just like say, oh, tell me about it. Oh, I, I see how that might be difficult for you. No, you have to be in the actual back seat um, to the extent that is possible. Talk to actual people who are there and listen to their actual experience and then see what you can do to make their experience better because it's just a, it's a reality of positioning. You're listening to In Good Faith and we'll be back with more of this discussion in just a moment. Hi, Stephen Cap Perry here, host of In Good Faith. Here's another podcast from our BYU Radio family of podcasts I hope you'll check out. What I love is real. You know that saying, real recognize real? That's Lisa on The Lisa Show. Lisa Valentine Clark is a comedian. She's a believer, a single mother. And on The Lisa Show podcast, you'll hear from the Council of Moms, a genius idea, which is actually one of my favorite parts of her show. And you'll hear about the challenges of life, parenting, mental health questions, social issues. Yes, you'll hear from experts, but also from people discussing their where the rubber meets the road life experience. It's The Lisa Show, wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with more of In Good Faith, speaking today with Dr. Melissa Inouye, who's the author of Sacred Struggle, Seeking Christ on the Path of Most Resistance. You give some great examples about the light that God has given to various people. And of course, we're very interested in this on In Good Faith. And you quote someone who's Jewish, someone from the True Jesus Church in China, as well as Taoism. And I wonder if you'd maybe pick one of those and, and talk a little bit about the light you see or what you have learned well, maybe I'll talk about the True Jesus Church since I spent so much time with them. And published on this. Yeah. <laughs> right. So when I was researching the True Jesus Church, I did field work. And for about a year, you know, I went to meetings, just as many as I could go to, as much church as possible. Like the, the Wednesday scripture study. The, and this is in Hong Kong? Uh, this is in China. In China. Uh-huh. My husband had had taken a year off from his law job, and he was watching the kids. So I had you know a ton of time to travel and to go to church. I went to so much church, and then like and we had our own services, which are also pretty interesting, which I can maybe describe to it. But anyway, so I was going to church, and I was at this prayer meeting with this young person. This is kind of the beginning of my study. And the, this young person was like, have you ever tried praying before? And, and I know how the True Jesus Church prays. It's, it's loud. They're shaking. They can go on for a long time. I, I personally, you know, was not taught how to pray like this. So it felt a little uncomfortable. She's like, it's really easy. All you have to do is just say, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. It's like, hallelujah is God's phone number. 
and you're just, you know, calling God on the phone. I was like, I don't think I can do that because I was afraid. I was afraid if I called, what would happen if I called God on the hallelujah telephone and God picked up? <laughs> then what? Right. And then I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. What, where's my religious center? I, and I was worried. I was a younger person. I was, um, I had maybe experienced less religion. I don't know. Uh, but now I think I'm not so worried about that. I've just seen, you know, God everywhere. God has not limited themselves to one religion, to one tradition, to one kind of person, to one location. God's hand is at work everywhere. That was Melissa anyway. We had a wonderful conversation with her. And one of the moments that really stuck out to me was when she was talking about the crucifixion. And then she started talking about her own experience with her cancer treatment and how she felt inadequate and how she wasn't wise and how most people are not like her and they don't start their cancer experience in their 30s mm. as a as a young person like she did. And then it just really struck me that there was this tide of the crucifixion where Jesus was in his 30s when he was crucified and he really wasn't that old and he wasn't that experienced. And that was just a powerful moment for me thinking about her in relation to him and, and all of us. Even though he could as God understand all things, but the idea he hadn't had arthritis for 30 years. Yeah. He, he probably felt pretty good most of the time. She talks about gaining power over suffering and that on the other side of suffering is strength. I don't know if any of us really think we want that strength enough to go through the suffering, but we don't always get that choice. Well, I really appreciated how she defined that strength. She said, you can't stop the suffering. You can't keep another person in your life from suffering. The The power comes from knowing that it's going to fade and that you will be on the other side of it. And that to me is really enlightening because I think when we think of power over suffering, we think I will, I'll be bulletproof. <laughs> I think those are very immature ideas of what power over suffering is. So to hear her talk about it in that way was instructive for me. And she said, being useful is the whole point of life. Uh, that's not something I've heard often, that true greatness consists merely of being useful. And the more useful you are to more people, the greater you are. And so I think of someone like Melissa sharing her knowledge here, really being useful, that's greatness. But also then we look at Jesus and the atonement and the crucifixion and being useful to every being, that's true greatness. Well, our next guest is David W. Peters, who also is going to be talking about the crucifixion and also going to be talking about the lessons we can learn from, in his own words, this horrible event, uh, this awful event um, that teaches us who God really is. David Peters served as an enlisted Marine and army chaplain. So he he comes from this from this very different perspective of vulnerability, of woundedness that in some ways complements Melissa's own uh, experience. He's the author of several books and the one that we will focus on is his Post-Traumatic Jesus, A Healing Gospel for the Wounded. And I started by just saying words like PTSD and trauma are gonna come up. What do those mean to him? I think most people before 2001 wouldn't have known what PTSD stood for or what it was, but just the preponderance of articles, both positive and negative and everywhere in between, has really shown this subject in a, in a broader light 
for war veterans, combat veterans, it's pretty easy to see trauma and those sorts of experiences. Trauma is the Greek word for wound. There's a lot of words for wound in Greek, like there are in English for, in every language has a lot of words for cuts, scrapes, bruises, you name it, because that's something that happens universally to human beings. And so in the literature of the last 20 plus years, there's been a lot of focus on combat trauma and what that does to people. And then this other group of victims that had PTSD and trauma-related issues of, of people that have survived sexual assault. And the research and, and diagnosis of PTSD came out of these two populations. So today, I think we live in a much more trauma-informed community and society, but it really just means wound. And it's different than just a physical wound on the surface of our skin or that pierces our skin, but also an emotional and spiritual wound that changes the nature of who we are in the area of trust. You've done something really interesting, which is to project back and as much as I have read in the New Testament, some very violent episodes, picturing Mary there at the foot of the cross with the other women and the apostles there during the hours, hours that Jesus was being crucified and dying. We forget sometimes because she is so honored that she lived with that trauma for the rest of her life and how that might have informed this is, to me, the spiritual connection that I would love you to make for us, that for Christians, we have a post-traumatic Jesus, someone who has lived through ultimate pain. I think for all of us that grow up in church, or maybe not in church, but hear stories about Jesus, the crucifixion is the thing that people do know about Jesus, that he died that way and that it was painful in that way. And then there's the sort of the spiritual theological reflections on crucifixion that we might hear as a kid that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, as, as Paul says in the New Testament. But those two things don't always come together. The sheer physical pain of being crucified, which is the Roman torture method. And then this other spiritual theological things that are happening that Christians have always known, even in the gospel accounts, even though they don't go into long theological explanations of what is happening there on the cross. And so I've been trying to bring these two things together for, for all of us. And that's what we have to do with our own trauma too. The events in our lives that turned our world upside down, that we look back maybe 20 or 10 years later and say, oh, that was a turning point when I lost that person in my life or that car wreck happened or that war or that assault or that situation. And it can be a wide variety of things. A lot of things that get to us in the inner part of our soul that turns it upside down says, I'm not safe anymore. I can't trust anybody anymore. And when you, when you look at that and say, where was God when that happened? Where is God now after that happened? Could God really be a loving and generous and creative God and still allow this to happen? That's sort of the classic question of theodicy and is God there? Is God not there? But to me, that is the essential spiritual quest for all, all Christians is to say, where was God in the events of my life? And to me, the crucifixion really shows us how to do that. That early Christians saw this horrific event with their own eyes. They witnessed it and they felt it in their soul, especially Mary, to see her son suffering in that way. And then her reflections with the early church as she goes on and becomes a, 
you know, a key player in the events that happen later. Even some scholars suggest that the Gospel of Luke is Mary's perspective on the life of Jesus as she is the eyewitness to the events mm. of his birth, as every mother is the only yes. one that <laughs> kind of really knows what, what went down. So to me, that's the essential quest of this book is to say, how can we look at the events of our life that turned our world upside down and reflect on them theologically through this lens of trauma so that we can get to the same place that those early disciples got to when they realized that this event of trauma, of crucifixion, of death and destruction was somehow the path to salvation, was somehow the path to a new way of living. Because you served as an enlisted Marine and Army chaplain in Iraq, did you have to go through some of that process yourself or with soldiers that you served very close to? How was that healing for them? How did that connect? I think everybody loses something in a war. You just don't know what it's going to be. And for me, it was my sense that, that God was good and that God loved me and was going to honor the promises that I thought God owed me because I had done certain things right and in the proper order and things like that. And that was where the wound, the spiritual wound was for me in, in the Iraq war. When I witnessed the just the horror of war on a very low level, as a combat army chaplain, I was uh, a non-combatant. I was an observer to the actual war. I was there to encourage the soldiers that were put in my charge to care for their spiritual lives, emotional lives, and try to connect them with the religious resources so they could practice their faith freely in a time of great conflict. That was for every religious group you can imagine that were there in my unit. I was a Protestant chaplain in, the, in that context, but we certainly made sure they could have the tools they needed to get through this difficult experience. But in that Witnessing the, the horror of war, and it's not really particular horrors, but war is so brutal in that young people are empowered to kill, and that's the job, and that's what they're supposed to be doing. And when you ponder the, the purposelessness of that and the waste of that, even if it's for a good reason, self-defense being sort of the universally recognized reason for a war, it still is horrific and horrible. And it's huge. It's on a grand scale beyond anything I'd ever been part of. And so for me, when I came back from that, got home, my marriage fell apart. I felt like that was the sign that, that, that everything else was wrong in my life, that God had left me, God mm. couldn't be trusted. Here I'd been doing something that I thought was good, being there for the soldiers in their time of need, and then coming home to just untreated PTSD. Do you mind sharing an example of what that was like? I was constantly hypervigilant. I couldn't sleep, feeling this threat all the time around me. And so in that aftermath of coming home, I really felt like God had abandoned me. And in some ways, God had. The God that was the Santa Claus God that a lot of people have, you know, and it's... You can't fault us for it. You know, we we kind of teach our kids, if you do good things, good things will happen to you. And there's a truth to that, of course. But it was when I pondered the story of Jesus through my own post-traumatic lens, now seeing the world in a very different way and saying, you know, Jesus did everything right. And look what happened to him. Maybe his experience is the experience of every human life that follows him. That, In fact, maybe even every human life that that exists on this planet. I'm always surprised that people haven't connected their own traumatic experiences with the traumatic stuff in Jesus's life. To me, it just kind of happened intuitively because 
I was desperate. I was trying to find, is this normal when I'm feeling all these weird feelings and I have untreated PTSD and, and just everything in my life is turned upside down. I can't trust anybody now and I'm angry and upset and I feel a foreshortened future and all these other symptoms that were hitting me. I thought, I've got to find something in my faith that connects with this or I'm not going to have any faith. So this book is, is the fruits of my search for that. But I'm always surprised that Christians really feel alone in their suffering and in their trauma. In spite of all the stuff we talk about on Sundays about the crucifixion and resurrection and death of Jesus and other miracles and stories that he did that relate to trauma. Um, and he still is depicted often um, with nail scars in his hands and side and feet. We tell that story of Thomas, but, but people in the pews still think that their experience of trauma, whether it was a sexual assault or a war or a car crash, that that, has, that somehow doesn't belong in church, that they can never, ever talk about that in a context of, of their Christian faith. That, that is always profoundly sad to me. And I, ultimately, this is a faith where we're, we're able to talk about death. Where else can you go in American culture and talk about death in such an honest way and a, in a triumphant way, too, that, that death is not the end for, for any of us? that Jesus shows us through his death and resurrection that this pattern is the pattern that we all will be able to follow through him, that we will die on this planet, we will rise from the dead. And that the little deaths we experience, these traumatic events, are also opportunities for resurrection, that that kind of resurrection will happen. Never in our, the timing we can expect it. I imagine for those disciples, those three days, those three days must have been an eternity of doubt and despair and fear. And so it is with us. It always seems like it takes a lot longer for God to work through the power of resurrection, but God always does. And so that that's a, something I hope people can hear. It is in those times where we're trying our hardest to do right, often that we fail. What's an example of one of those times for you? I thought back to a moment from the Iraq war where we were going out on a convoy one night and I would go with the soldiers on their little trips around Baghdad and to other places just to kind of ride along and try to experience the world that they lived in to some degree. And these were very risky in the sense that that's where the risk was in, in Baghdad for us was getting blown up while we drove yeah. from place to place. And before the, we'd pray before the convoy and somebody say, oh, the chaplain's going with us tonight. We're going to be okay. Everything's going to be great. And I would say, you know, the founder of my religion died 500 miles west of here. You know, <laughs> and, uh, and they would all like look at me kind of funny, but... But actually, you know, looking back now, that truth of the founder of my religion died 500 miles west of here. The founder of my religion died just like we might die tonight, um, doing something that we think is good and right. That's actually something he experienced. And that's actually something God experienced. That really kind of helped me put together the pieces of a shattered God. And that took years. But to say that God really, in the crucifixion and the trauma of the crucifixion, shows us that God is present in our worst experiences, but not as an aloof observer or a scientist experimenting on us or something like that, but ultimately as someone that suffers with us and that experiences everything that we've experienced, including the worst things that happen on this planet. For I'm trying to help people see in the yeah. book that 
that this is true of, of you as well, of all of us. You have a tension in this book that we call the absent God and the God who is in it with us, a God who is silent. And I, I want to ask about that tension of, can that just feel imaginary? How, how you perceive that God is going through something with you, even though you don't see God, God is not carrying your pack, God is not, you don't see God wielding a sword <laughs> six feet in front of you, whatever that might be. How is that a comfort? Because it can be a comfort for people. Yeah, there's definitely tension in the book and I think in life between the God who is absent and the God who suffers with us. This tension is in the crucifixion of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He yes. says, quoting a psalm. Maybe he quotes the whole psalm and they just have that one line from it in the scriptures. Maybe that's the only line he can say. But what a profound anti-God statement or statement of feeling abandoned by God. He literally says it with his own words there on the cross. And the gospel writers say that he says this in Aramaic in his mother tongue. And here, Christians would rarely ever say that the crucifixion was, was an event of God abandoning Jesus or of God not being present in a situation. And yet Christians have always kind of known that there's something happening in the crucifixion that is really horrific in the way that we understand God. And yet every victim of trauma knows what's happening there. You don't need a theologian to help you sort out what's happening there on the cross. He's being crucified, and the God that he's prayed to, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. This God that Jesus has prayed to is not there. And that silence and the lack of intervention and the lack of, of love in that situation is something Jesus feels and that we feel too, even at the very minor inconveniences of my life, I feel this abandonment of God that somehow, especially if I've been doing things right and I've, I haven't been trying to make too many shortcuts, these are the moments where I feel that maybe there is no God. So as you said, we hear these things in church, we hear them in Sunday school, we think we have faith, we think we believe, but then when real traumatic events overtake us, is our untried faith enough? I think for modern people in 2023, we live with two brains. One brain is there is God and God loves me. God created the world. God has a plan, some kind of plan and future. There is a, a future of hope that awaits us all in that glorious kingdom of light. And we look for that as Christians and Jesus is there waiting for us. And the sort of the truths that we talk about in church all the time, like they're basic facts of the universe. And then we live with this other mind, which is very materialistic and just like there is only what you can see, feel and touch. Very nihilistic. Be a good person, do your best, but it's over when you die. We are part of just this biological process that has no future ultimately other than maybe doing some good for others. And I feel like I have those two brains all the time. I kind of switch back and forth depending on what's happening. And I think we can see this in the, in the crucifixion a little bit, that the reality of Jesus in that moment is God has forsaken him. And, and that's essentially saying there really isn't any God out there. And if there is, this God is not good. This God is not helping me. And that is a really bold and harsh thing to say. 
And yet this is like the statement of faith from the cross that Christians have reflected on because that's how it feels. And when someone's going through a traumatic event, we should expect that they're going to feel that something has shifted in their relationship with God, that something has been broken, something has been lost. And so the whole meaning of the resurrection is the restoration of that trust. This is In Good Faith. We'll be back with more in just a moment. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. When you talk about current events, do you ever feel like you have to tiptoe around people you know or maybe even family members because it seems like some topics are just like landmines? Can I even bring up this topic and have a civil discussion without starting a civil war within my family? Check out the podcast Top of Mind with award-winning journalist Julie Rose. Top of Mind dives into those tough topics, but it does it in a way that actually models how to have intelligent conversations, ask questions out of sincere curiosity, seeking to understand. Top of Mind is not trying to take a position and change your mind or persuade you. It is exploring. You'll come away with more empathy and clarity so that you can become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, even family member. Listen to Top of Mind wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to In Good Faith, and today we're talking about trauma, about suffering, about PTSD, and about how faith can lead us through that. And we're speaking today with David W. Peters, an author and the vicar of St. Joan of Arc Episcopal Church in the Diocese of Texas. You talk about the idea that Jesus kept his wounds and that that was important and that we exist in the side, in the wound in the side of Jesus. Talk to me about what that means that he kept his scars and how that is for us as we try and establish our identity after trauma. I think that that Jesus is saying, this is the pattern of how we're going to live in this world as my followers in my kingdom. That the things that happen to us, the wounds of our lives are going to be healed and they are going to become the things that everyone can see and be thankful for and say, this is the path of life. This is how we actually save the world. This is how we give gifts to the world. This is how we bless the world through the wounds of our lives. This is something Jesus shows us and we show other people. It is not something that we necessarily foist on other people or try to get them to do it too early. They need to go on their own healing journey at their pace. So Jesus showing us these wounds is a, is a way of saying, this is how we, how we live the human life here following Jesus, through the power of these wounds, the power of saying, I'm vulnerable. This happened to me. This isn't the soul of who I am. In fact, um, now because of this, I'm able to love in a more deep way. And, and that is what Jesus does for these disciples, even the ones that denied him there when he meets with them again, and they all abandon him. He's actually able to show them even greater love through these wounds than we even saw before. And they take that love and they carry it all around the world as they are wounded themselves from these events of crucifixion. I also think that if Jesus has physical wounds that we can see in his hands and side and feet, he has other wounds too, I I would assume. I'm making a big leap of assumption here. But that I don't think anyone can be crucified and not have some post-traumatic stress from that, some uh, bodily sense of trauma. To me, the lingering effects of crucifixion 
um, must be part of who he is now internally as well. Just as the, the lingering effects of our traumatic experiences are definitely part of us in our mind and our hearts in that way. We get little biographical notes about you sort of scattered throughout the book. I have images of a teenage door-to-door evangelical missionary, someone who enlists in the Marine Corps at age 17. Eventually, you're a chaplain. Now you're a priest. When you look back on your life, are you surprised by where you've arrived and how you've gotten there? And I wonder if that relates. You have a whole chapter, uh, I think it's page 51, about taking up the cross, whatever that might be. I just wonder if you could talk a, a bit about your personal journey. Yeah, um, it's been really surprising for me to think of, even though I've gone through a lot of shifts and, as I've said before, you know, loss of faith in God and anger at God and, and other shifts, I've switched from a fundamentalist Christian church to the Episcopal church, which is a very different experience of, of uh, American and world Christianity culturally in a lot of other ways. But but really that same Jesus is always there. Yeah, the same Jesus uh, from my childhood has been with me my whole life. And now that I've gone through the experience of the Iraq war for me and the traumatic events of that, I have experienced Jesus in a new way. I think every everybody kind of recognizes that at some point, that Jesus, who is the human incarnation of God, who has lived here on this planet with us, ultimately can adapt to just about every situation that we might find ourselves in so that he can love us. Ultimately, that's the purpose of of any kind of adaption and change is so that love can flow in a more healing way. And that has helped me through these last number of years, knowing that Jesus suffered. And so whatever I'm suffering, whatever I'm feeling abandoned, alone, whenever I'm feeling that shroud of, of gloom that seems to descend upon him in the Garden of Gethsemane, whenever I'm feeling helpless, hopeless, worthless, all those things, that Jesus is there with me, experiencing that and there to show me love. And that that's helped me through a lot of things, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. And it's the same Jesus, but um, Jesus looks really different now, but he always still kind of looks like me. That was David W. Peters. He's the author, most recently, of Post-Traumatic Jesus, A Healing Gospel for the Wounded. Well, the wounded is all of us, but it's also Jesus as he talks about it. And boy, I think one of the most powerful phrases in everything that he talked about was the question, where was God when this happened? Or more immediate, I wrote it in present tense as as he was talking where is it? Where is God as this is happening? Yeah. Because I can think of myself as a child being lost in a grocery store, for instance. That seems pretty traumatic. Oh, no, I'm lost. And you could say, oh, the parents are watching on the security system. They know that you won't be hurt. That doesn't help me not be traumatized by being lost and alone. And so this idea of how does someone I can't see being with me and co-suffering how does that help me? I think that's a really interesting question. I, you know, what I was really touched by was when he talked about this idea of the wounds are the thing that heal us and our wounds are the thing that are going to heal others and we can offer them to others. And this, in a lot of ways, is connected to what Melissa had to say, right? It's only through 
that path of most resistance that we learn how to be useful. And I feel like these two people are letting us know that our vulnerability and our wounds are going to help people. It might take us a long time to get there. And I don't think there's any shame in that. But eventually, these things can be turned to good. I think kind of on the on the same line of thought about kind of feeling alone in this suffering and feeling um, forsaken, as they both talked about with Jesus on the cross and ourselves in our own suffering, it's easy to feel forsaken. And we don't often talk in church and in a, in a Christian context about being supposed to feel alone. We talk about being supposed to feel God's presence and God's help through our trials. But as um, our guests were both talking about crucifixion and Jesus on the cross feeling forsaken, it got me thinking that Jesus is our perfect example and he felt alone in his moment of trial and suffering. And that's part of the design. That's part of the process is to, is to feel alone and to be able to find God and, and Jesus through that. Both of our authors today were giving us a gift of vulnerability, I think, by asking some really difficult questions. This last one from uh, David Peters was, he said, everyone loses something in war. And this, I think, could apply to any difficult circumstance. And he said he lost the sense that God is good. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And Melissa, anyway, says she kind of lost the sense that she was good mm. or that she was perfect and confident and and outgoing and kind and generous. So two amazing books. One is Sacred Struggle, Seeking Christ on the Path of Most Resistance, and then Post-Traumatic Jesus, A Healing Gospel for the Wounded. Thank you to both Melissa and David for their gift of vulnerability and what they shared with all of us. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley and me, Stephen Cap Perry. Our production team also includes Leah King, Katarina Martinic, and Ashton Rowan. Our post-production sound designers are Mark Hansen, Daniel Phillips, and Carly Wilson. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If interfaith understanding is important to you, be sure and leave a comment or a five-star review on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod and on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast. InGoodFaith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join me again soon right here in Good Faith. <laughs>